continuing our aim to understand the present through the past. The same time as the Soviet Union was finally withdrawing from Afghanistan. The march of freedom and democracy, which will leave Marxism-Leninism on the ash heap of history. So he's going from a think tank into the government, into, into the Bush administration. Out of these troubled times, our fifth objective, a new world order can emerge. So liberal democracy, kind of American freedom, had triumphed. There is no longer a clear division between what is foreign and what is domestic. We do have an overarching topic for this series of Barely Getting By, and that is the 1990s. Hello, and welcome back to Barely Getting By, the long 1990s. I'm Chloe Ward. And I'm Emma Shortis. So I think in our last instalment, we might have overpromised a bit by saying we were going to explain the Cold War from, you know, its genesis in the end of the Second World War to its end in 1989 or thereabouts. Yes, I think a little ambitious. Usually when I'm teaching American history, this one takes me at least two hours. But we won't do that today. No, we won't do that today. We're going to to try and keep it to 15 minutes. So we're going to start at the start and end at the end and cut out a lot that happened in the middle, although it is very interesting. So how did the Cold War start? So we find the origins of the Cold War in, I guess, the ashes of the Second World War. And I think it's always important to remember that it was not inevitable. So the Soviet Union and the United States at the end of the Second World War are in fact allies. They are on the same side. They have been fighting for the same thing, which is the defeat of Nazi Germany, of course. So they are not exactly friends, but kind of on the same side of history at this stage. And and what happens, I think, is both the Soviet Union and the United States kind of fail to understand each other. On the American side, which of course is the side that with which I am the most familiar, what happens at the end of the Second World War is the US is kind of it's supremely confident. So, so they've intervened in the Second World War and helped defeat Nazi Germany. So the US is simultaneously um, supremely confident. It's an economic powerhouse and is emerging as a superpower, which it wasn't before. It's hard to imagine the world where the United States is not the sole superpower, but of course, at the end of the Second World War, it is not. So on the one hand, it's kind of supremely confident, strutting about the world stage, but on the other hand, is kind of paranoid. So until the end of the Second World War, the US kind of felt pretty safe. You know, it's a continent protected by an ocean on either side. But at the end of the war, American policymakers no longer feel safe because of huge leaps in technology of things like air power. The US feels vulnerable and is basically set on making sure that it is not It can never be vulnerable again, but also that really crucial parts of Europe and Asia never fall under the control of a hostile power because those regions are seen as crucial to American economic success and expansion. I think that word paranoia is also pretty apt to describe the Soviet Union and Stalin's attitude at the end of the Second World War. One thing that often I think goes sadly forgotten when people recount the history of the Second World War is that if you had to isolate one factor in the Allies' victory against Nazi Germany, then it was the Soviet Union and it was the enormous sacrifice of Soviet citizens during that war. And it was also the Soviet Union's incredible industrial capacity that it built up through the six years of the Second World War. 25 million Soviet citizens died 
in that war. And that's the best estimate we have of those numbers. Yeah. And, and I think it's, I mean, it's important to say just for a little bit of context, because that's like such a kind of, um, I guess, anonymous number. That's, that's pretty much the entire current population of Australia. Yeah. Is dead. So, so the Soviet Union, it came out of that war incredibly wounded, but also incredibly powerful. And if you're thinking about, you know, people also make the mistake of thinking of the, of the Soviet Union in strictly expansionist terms, and that's what they think of when they think of the establishment of the satellite communist nations of the Eastern Bloc after the Second World War. As far as Stalin was concerned, they weren't necessarily the subjects of an empire per se. They were more of a buffer zone between the Soviet Union and Western Europe, and in particular its former enemy, Germany. That's right. And I think, you know, the Americans in particular underestimated the fact that the Soviet Union had been invaded through Poland twice in the last 30 years. And Stalin was kind of hell bent on making sure that didn't happen again. So it's important to recognize, I think, that that Stalin was open to compromise around some issues, but not around Poland. And the Americans, I think, kind of misread that situation. So what happened? So how did how did we get to this situation of Cold War and what does that Cold War mean? So I, I, what happens then, as we said, is there's this kind of, I guess, misinterpretation by on the part of both the Soviets and the Americans of each other's intentions. And that misinterpretation, instead of kind of being worked through by, in the traditional diplomatic sense, um, degenerates into what is an existential conflict. So the Americans, for their part, decide that Soviet communism is inherently expansionist and is a kind of existential threat to American liberal democracy. And the Soviets kind of come to the same conclusion that the US is also inherently expansionist and is out to destroy the Soviet Union. So what we see then is a degeneration into an existential conflict and the total kind of cutting off of diplomatic channels of all any and all conversation. That conflict then degenerates further into a nuclear standoff where both powers are kind of armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons pointed at each other, eventually leading to a kind of weird equilibrium of what's called mad or mutually assured destruction, where both sides know that the other has the capacity to completely destroy not only them, but everything. And so we're in this kind of standoff. Now that standoff lasts for nearly half a century. That's what we mean when we say Cold War, but... And, you know, this is where the sort of 40 years we're skipping over are quite important. There were, it was a hot war in places, wasn't it? It was. I think there's a there's a kind of tradition amongst, um, I guess, diplomats to think of this as a sort of relatively stable and, and peaceful time as much as the kind of threat of total annihilation is hanging over everything. But exactly as you say, in many parts of the world, this is a a hot war and an extremely damaging war as both sides the Soviet Union and the United States kind of outsource their conflicts to places like Vietnam and and any number of conflicts are kind of fought in the name of the Cold War including Vietnam the Korean War in the, the Soviet Union fighting in Afghanistan so this is a war of huge consequence all over the world and decisions are made completely in its shadow so that means that once we skip forward to the 1980s and the end of the Cold War, that's going to have global implications. So the last, in the last instalment of this episode, we talked about the end of the Cold War from a US perspective, from the perspective of US triumphalism. But I think it's, it's worth going into what was happening in the Soviet, in the Soviet Union. So we mentioned last, in the last instalment so the Soviet Union's failed war in Afghanistan and its slow retreat from Afghanistan by 1989. But 
We also have to remember that the Soviet Union had also been going through a period of stagnation and economic decline. And that's been taken as evidence for, you know, in a lot of circles for the, you know, I guess the bankruptcy or the invalidity of socialist or socialist ideas of the organisation of the economy. Um, I'm not going to go into that here, probably. I don't think we've really got time, so, except to say that by the mid-1980s, the Soviet model of the planned economy was looking pretty dire and it wasn't working. So this is the time at which Mikhail Gorbachev came to power as the president of the Soviet of the Soviet Union. That's right. And I think Gorby, as he is affectionately known, is is the kind of crucial figure if we have to pick one in the end of the Cold War. If we go back to the American side, usually it's kind of Ronald Reagan who's held up as as the man who won the Cold War for America by driving the Soviets kind of into the ground with a with an accelerated arms race, but then also kind of opening up to negotiations with Gorbachev. But I, I think you would agree, Chloe, that it's Gorbachev's reforms within the Soviet Union that are really significant here. Yes, absolutely. And it's another important thing. I mean, look, there are just so many important reminders throughout this history of the Soviet Union that Gorbachev, he was committed to the Soviet Union and to the Soviet system, but what he wanted to do in the 1980s was reform it. So, and that meant there were two key reforms that he made that, looking back on it, really accelerated the demise of the USSR, but also brought us to this moment in 1989 where those satellite, the satellite states in Eastern Europe started to revolt and communist rule ended. They'd, these reforms were Glasnost and Perestroika, which were policies of greater political openness, so you know more tolerance of criticism within the regime, and also some you know some economic liberalisation. So that was sort of the background to these experiments in liberalisation in the Soviet Union that sort of hastened its demise by 1991. The third thing that Gorbachev did that was really important was he was focusing on the Soviet Union. So he basically said that he was no longer going to interfere in the politics of those of, of the satellite states in Eastern Europe, which brings us to 1989. As I said before, Stalin was dead set on establishing these, satel these satellite states as a buffer zone for the Soviet Union and succeeding Soviet leaders had dramatically and quite violently intervened in their politics over the, over the previous 40 years. But, but Gorbachev said he wasn't going to. So that's what enabled the successive revolutions of 1989, starting in Poland and ending in Romania. And Romania was the only, the only one of those revolutions that was actually violent. They were all peaceful revolutions, which was astonishing to anyone watching politics in 1989. And even a few years before that, that kind of outcome was basically impossible to picture because, as you said, um, this... Cold War had actually been so incredibly violent. And so that's a dramatic shift. But there's also a dramatic shift happening in the United States where Ronald Reagan is president. And and up until kind of late in his first term, Reagan was extremely hardline as well against the Soviet Union. He had called it an evil empire and had kind of escalated things to the point where in 1983 we in fact almost see an, an all-out nuclear war again. So things have gotten very, very bad in the 1980s. But what happens in, in Reagan's own mind is this what sort of becomes known as the Reagan reversal, where basically Ronald Reagan has this realisation that Americans have lived with the, with the sheer terror of nuclear annihilation for decades. They have been so afraid that the Soviets would attack them. And all of a sudden, 
Ronald Reagan realises that the Soviets live with the same fear. He's genuinely surprised to, to, to know that the Soviets are terrified of the Americans and think the same thing. They think the Americans could strike them at any moment. And what that does is allow Reagan, I suppose, to kind of relate to the Soviets. And he decides that he is willing to talk to Soviet leaders to get in the same room as them. So we're kind of opening up diplomatic relations in a, in a way they haven't been before. So all of these things kind of coalesce, I guess, the Reagan reversal, the opening up of diplomatic relations and Gorbachev's reforms to make a peaceful resolution to the Cold War possible, where previously, you know, even a couple of years beforehand, that seemed absolutely impossible. Yes. And this is what brings us to 1989 and the end of the Cold War that looked very much like it was the end of the Cold War on the US's terms. So we have revolution in Eastern Europe and we have this very fast decline in the Soviet Union, which ends in 1991 with its dissolution and the emergence of the Russian Federation. That's right. And in in the the kind of first instalment of this episode, we we went over the, I guess, um, prevailing American interpretation of the end of the Cold War, which is, you know, basically that liberal democracy emerges triumphant and history is finished. But that, of course, is not the only interpretation of the end of the Cold War, is it, Chloe? No, that's not. Another way of looking at it is to see the Soviet Union as kind of acting as a check on the excesses of capitalism in the West. So this is an idea, this is a theory of the Cold War, an understanding of the Cold War that was made made popular by the historian Eric Hobsbawm. And what Hobsbawm said is that basically with the Soviet Union as its sort of communist bogeyman, that is what incentivized the USA and other liberal democracies to kind of bring into bring into being the modern welfare state. So without the Soviet Union, they would have had no reason to actually have, to actually institute so any form of social welfare, and they would have just let capitalism run rampant. The reason I'm th- I'm talking about that, I'm thinking about that, is because of what happened after the end of the Cold War and this period of liberal complacency that Emma and I were talking about in the last instalment, where without a left, without, you know, a viable left-wing alternative, capitalism basically ran rampant. That's right. And I think that's what we're seeing today is the kind of recognition 30 years later of the consequences of that unfettered, unleashed capitalism that we saw at the after the end of the Cold War. And that's why we see the popularity of someone like Bernie Sanders, who calls himself a democratic socialist in the United States, and even unlikely candidates like Britney Spears outing themselves as socialists, you know, whatever that may mean. And I think that's what we will explore in the the final instalment in this opening episode of season two of Barely Getting By. And that is, I guess, kind of the consequences of capitalism unleashed. That's right. And we're going to be doing that by going back to Eric Hobsbawm, who is my, my second favourite historian. Only your second? Yes, only my second. My first is E.P. Thompson, but I don't think we're going to get to do a podcast on him. Um, so, yes, we're going to be talking about a different view of the 1990s to what we talked about in our first instalment with Francis Fukuyama, but one that was, I guess, a little bit, a little bit more uncertain about what, would we, what we, the world would be facing in that decade. So we hope you'll join us next time for our discussion of different interpretations of the end of the Cold War and the beginning of the 1990s. Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original theme music is by Stuart Cullen.